You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Good morning, everyone. Just think about one thing. Dead of winter, snow just stinging your face, and you got your shoulders up, your hood on. I want you to think about that when you complain it's too hot. <laughs> okay. This week we're going to look at uh, chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. And th- there's a lot in this chapter and, and in chapter 5, and they really should be read together. But, uh, you know, we're going to really kind of just focus on chapter 4. For many of us, the book of Revelation is really kind of uh, scary, sometimes troubling. Uh, but we have to remind ourselves all the time that it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I, I wanted to, us to read the, actually the introduction so that we can, we can read and be clear on to whom the book was given and why. So if you look at the, just the prologue, it says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must t- must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. The key is, it's written to reveal Jesus Christ to us, so he can bless us as we read it or if we hear it. See, Jesus wants John to let us know there's a real serious war that's about to happen. And we need to really understand who is sovereign over all things. By having Jesus reveal his persona as the risen Lord, the worthy and glorious one, we can step into difficult times with absolute confidence. So you don't really need to be bogged down with the weirdness, if you will, but to capture the vision that John's relating to us. So we're given a vision of this, of a glorious God and the triumphant Christ. And he tells John to write all these things down. So our literal reading has to give way. We have to convert it into pictures. We have to images. We have to move into capture emotion, and we have to capture the vastness of the vision that John sees. So it's more than literature. So he begins his letters with the seven churches. Most of you have read his book, but if you haven't, he he reads it. He has a letter to all seven churches, and all seven are going to get the entire revelation. But Jesus has some real important things to say to each church, and each of these letters reveals his love and his compassion as he corrects, as he encourages, and as he blesses these churches. In doing so, he blesses us so we can see our own weaknesses and know that we too can be overcomers in Christ. From there, John's presented with an open door, an open door in heaven, and he's asked to come up. John is immediately put into the spirit, and he has this suddenly has this vision of heaven and of God on the throne. Today, we're not going to break down all the things that go on. We're going to only focus on the worship, the worship in heaven. 
And that's why this is called Worship of Heaven. So we're told, we're told of 24 enthroned elders. They're encircling the, the throne of God and dressed in white robes and they're wearing golden crowns and <clears throat> crowns that signify victory. And Jesus tells us about four heavenly creatures. And they're really weird. They're, they, they're, they got all these wings and all these eyes and one looks like a lion, another one looks like an ox, one looks like an eagle, one has the face of a man. But I want to pick up in verse 8. I want us to get there with John. And we're going to just read Revelation 4, 8. And it says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. So in the midst of the flashes of lightning and the thunder coming from the throne of God, uh, the, these creatures are singing day and night. Imagine this chaotic noise. It's got to be deafening. As a matter of fact, Isaiah in his book, chapter 6, he said, the foundations were thundering and shaking. Just the wings of these creatures, it said it were like the roar of rushing water. This is an amazing picture. Jesus, with the thunder and lightning like on Mount Sinai, is on his throne with that same thunder, lightning. John was overwhelmed. And these glorious beings have one reason for their existence. It's to serve no other person, purpose than to extol the character of God. Holy, holy, holy. Then John continues in verse 9 and 11 uh, to include the 24 elders in their praise. And it says, then they praise out. It says, whenever the living creatures give honor uh, and thanks to him who sits on the throne forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay that, their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being, have their purpose of being. As if it... I, 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 as if this proved to be an insufficient reminder of God's greatness, John twice makes sure he reiterates in the very same breath that God is the sovereign one, the one who sits on the throne, and twice he reminds us that he who lives forever and ever. John's just not fool. He is hammering this home. All of the living beings all the heavenly beings, everyone who's a direct witness of God, give him glory. Yes. Falling on one's face is a supreme gesture of honoring, far above, honoring someone far above oneself, and it's appropriately applied to God. This leads me to five conclusions about this splendor. The first one is God's in charge. I'm quoting Gregory Beale. And he says, he put it this way, the pastoral purpose of Revelation 4 and 5 
is to assure suffering Christians that God and Jesus are sovereign and that the events that the Christians are facing are part of a sovereign plan that will culminate in the redemption and vindication of their faith through the punishment of their persecutors. The focus of the revelation of John that John receives is God's glory. That's the focus of this revelation. Even the judgments, which he will soon witness, they glorify God. They explain his activity rather than simply entertaining our curiosity in the future. And so if the 24 elders symbolize the church, and probably they don't, but the nature of their worship still invites us to similar praise. They offer God not only their words, but their own glory, casting their crowns before the throne because they recognize God as the author and the purpose of existence. We don't know if they casted one of the five crowns or heaven, but to receive any crown from God is such an honor and a reward. And what they're recognizing, though, is to toss it before God states that the honor was to have God consider us worthy to receive it, not to wear it and to be proudly prancing around with our gold crowns. It's that we were considered honored by God to receive it. Humility is not humiliation. It recognizes who God is and who we are and the consequent vast difference between God and ourselves. This passage in Revelation and some others similar to it remind us that our primary job is honor in heaven. Our honor in heaven, like that of the living creatures, is to worship God. That's our job. That's our honor to do so. From this place of worship, we can find our being, and from this, we find our direction and action in the world. If it's not happening in our spiritual life, it'll never happen in our natural life. In the present life, worship that focuses on God's worthiness, both his character and his deeds, is the nearest foretaste of heaven. It's an experience in the down payment in the end time spirit by worshiping. I like Corinthians 2. It says, now it is God who makes us both, both of us and you, stand firm in Christ. He anoints us, sets his seal of ownership upon us, and puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When we worship, the spirit is activated that's deposited in us. And what becomes a reality, and then that becomes a reality in the depths of our worship and praise. Worship reminds us that whatever else our calling or gifting is now, whatever our office or our function is as we serve in the body, all Christians become one and the same as God's worshipers. The eternal future leaves little place for the gifts to hold any value. It's our devotion to God is what rises up from us. Thirdly, God's holy. The words holy, 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 repeated and contemplated, pulls us into the reality of God. It's Isaiah, one of the holiest men, was crushed when he heard that refrain, holy, holy, holy. In his dismay, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, but Isaiah wasn't comparing himself to the others. 
He was just struck by the majesty. He was struck by the presence of God. The thundering praise given, and he saw himself for who he was. You know, nothing banishes the pride of mortal flesh bound in human competition and agendas better than a taste of God's infinite greatness. It just cast it all away. God is holy, God is almighty, and God is eternal. In the John's day, imperial courts throughout the Near East were hailing their mighty emperor as a God in their own hymns. But it's just reduced to absurdity in the presence of the living God, in the face of the living God. The praises of the living creatures also remind us that simply declaring the truth of who God is and declaring the nature of, of his character brings glory. By, we, by just declaring who he is and his nature, that brings glory. God is holy, alone in his perfection. No one else can be compared to him. Worship is not the invitation to say nice things about God. It's the recognition of, God, of who God already is, as well as what he has already done or promised to do, and how worthy he is of our praise. Yet worship is not mere theological information. I'm quoting someone who wrote a book called Knowing God. And unfortunately, he passed away Friday, uh, J.I. Packer. And he says, turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God by turning each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So, see, one, one difference between my worship and the model provided here is I desperately need the model. While the creatures before God's throne, uh, they see God in his absolute clarity, in his glory. And I usually worship on, in this age by faith alone. Seeing through a, a, a glass darkly but confidently that the one we worship is greater than all the work of his hands. I, I look at Corinthians 1.13. It says, Now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This is why this book is so important. Because we can't know the splendor right now in our, our dark, smoky mirror. But we know it now because we're experiencing it with John. And where he brings it to life by the Spirit in us. We fall on our faces to honor. We honor God alone. Some of us are too anxious for our own uh, honor or reputation, even disguising it with false humility. So I can say I'm proud of the fact that I'm humble. You know, I myself uh, was guilty of comparing of, about how much I used to make in the past, but now I'm in retirement, I refer, refer to the smaller amount as God's provision. God said, I provide you with a pretty nice job. You walked away from it. So, but there's no other time to be really aware and consciously aware of the presence of God than in worship. 
Angels are surrounding us. They surrounded us just a couple of minutes ago. And they're singing along with us, holy, holy, holy. And we cast our vestiges of our accomplishments before the throne of God. Our crowns are no longer our identity, but a reminder of God's love for us, that his gift for us is heaven's gold. Fourth, it's the heart of God. God's self-sufficient. Augustine rightly declared, God thirsts to be thirsted after. And his love, and I dare say this, his love makes him vulnerable with those he loves to share intimacy and his desire with us because it can be rejected. But without him, we can't. And without us, he won't. Mark says in uh, four, four, sorry, 941, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose his, their reward. A cup of water is pleasing to God. See, a lot of you mothers know this one. You've got the little ones that, that, that come up to you with a bouquet of dandelions, <laughs> beaming. A fistful of weeds brings you joy. God delights in, in our affection for him that when we pause to allow him to lavish us with his affections on us. By the Spirit. He loves this. When we pause to praise Him, He lavishes us. That's the heart of God. You know, the one leper that returned to give thanks. And Jesus says, rise and go. Your faith has made you whole. The whole being of the person was changed. Not just his leprosy. His heart, everything about him was made whole. For, what, for saying thanks. Fifth, God is almighty. Just as the Christians had to stand up to emperors who claimed deity, we also worship in spirit and truth against a backdrop of the false in our own society. There's only one who is worthy, our Lord and God. We release our glory and honor and power to the one who is all glory and honor, the Almighty One. Only in the depths of worship, as we stand in awe of God's mag majestic spectacle of glory, do all competing claims for affection and attention recede into the rightful place. God alone is God. He alone merits first place. Beyond every other love, every other anxiety, every other fear that consumes us, God's greatness can, summons and commands our attention. God is the Lord of history and everything under control. The uncaused cause of creation, our praise puts, per, puts persecution, poverty, and plagues into perspective. God is sovereign over all. Yes. When we hear the term almighty, we usually think in terms of conquest over an enemy or overwhelming the, the resistance or an adversity. And that is part of the definition. You know, we talk about mighty rivers, the Nile, the Amazon, the Mississippi. And that, the Mississippi actually begins at the Canadian border in, in Minnesota. But its greatness, though, is the sum 
of all that pours into it from its tributaries. So it takes the Ohio, the Missouri, the Illinois, the Red River, I'm probably forgetting something, uh, Arkansas. It takes all of those to make it a mighty river. With God, the picture is opposite. Imagine the Mississippi starting, not in Minnesota, but in New Orleans. And then it just starts to flow. And it flows north. And it spreads into Ohio, the Ohio Valley of Kentucky, Tennessee. And it presses up against the Appalachian Mountains into Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, against the Poconos, against the, the Adirondacks, goes west and just starts crossing the Great Plains up against the Rocky Mountains from, from New Mexico all the way up to Montana, Idaho. That would be a mighty river. Supporting two-thirds of the United States, that would be a mighty river. The uncaused cause. That means nothing caused God but God causes all things. See, it begins with an idea. Then God gives that idea words and he speaks them. But, the un, but, the spoken, but by the spoken word, the universe is created. All known matter and, and energy is formed by God's spoken word. God then takes the chaos and for, gives it form. And from form, he issues forth life. And he declares it, it is good. But you see, the goodness that he declares is actually the idea that he began with. In the beginning, God manifests goodness in creation. God thinks we have skies full of stars and a planet full of his likeness, all declared to be good. That's a mighty God. And that's our God. So I, at this point, I think it would be a good time to stand, if you can. We're going to proclaim verses 8 and 11 ourselves, out loud, and we're going to thunder. We're going to join all the angels of heaven, and we're going to sing and say what they say. Now, if any of you have six wings and a few extra eyes, you can go ahead and fly around the sanctuary. <laughs> so I'm... So let's start with verse 8. Each of the four living creatures has six wings and was covered with eyes all around it, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They were created and have their being. As we, as we stand to give glory and honor and praise to God, let's be reminded of the new and everlasting covenant by the incarnate one, Jesus Christ. God made man. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.